U.S. troops begin arriving at the southern border to help with an expected influx of migrants as a pandemic-era immigration restriction ends today. It's Thursday, May 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the criminal charges against Congressman George Santos. The New York Republican says he won't resign. The reality is, it's a witch hunt. It, it, it makes no sense that in five months, I'm indicted. We'll look at how it's playing with GOP voters. Also, federal investigators may be looking into allegations of brutality by officers at a Massachusetts prison. For at least a year, there's been a federal grand jury investigating my clients testified. I know of other prisoners who testified. And this hour, elections this weekend could bring political change to Turkey for the first time in two decades. In sports, Red Sox win, mostly sunny, in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Troops have been deployed to the U.S.-Mexico border as the Biden administration prepares for the end of the pandemic-era immigration restrictions known as Title 42. That policy allowed officials to quickly expel migrants who crossed the border. People are now lining up at the border in southern states to cross into the U.S. as local officials get ready for a rise in the number of people who cross into the U.S. But it will be more difficult to claim asylum. And the U.S. says it has agreements with other countries in place to deny entry to some people and send them back to their country of origin. Along the Arizona border, Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone says the immigration system is broken. A failure to properly address issues of unlawful immigration at our border bleeds into our communities throughout the state and throughout the nation. It adversely affects our ability to provide public safety for our community. Title 42 ends tonight. Former President Donald Trump is continuing to reject a recent federal jury decision that found him liable of sexual abuse and defamation against writer E. Jean Carroll. As NPR's Elena Moore reports, Trump addressed the case during a live town hall event hosted by CNN. Outside of online written statements, Trump's comments mark his first public response to Tuesday's civil trial decision. Speaking with CNN's Caitlin Collins, Trump denied knowing Carroll, who has accused the former president of assaulting her in the mid-1990s. Trump also characterized both charges brought by Carroll as fake and argued the trial did not hurt his 2024 presidential chances. My poll numbers went up, and they went up with the other fake charge, too. Because what's happening is they're doing this for election interference. The New York civil case is just one of several legal battles the former president is currently facing as he begins another run for the presidency. Elena Moore, NPR News. After more than three pandemic years, the federal government's declaration of a COVID public health emergency is ending. And Pierre Selena Simmons-Duffin reports on what's changing and what's not. The biggest change for the American public is that the government will no longer buy tests and vaccine doses for free distribution. Health insurance will take over, although vaccines will still be free for practically everyone. CDC is also scaling back on COVID data collection, but telemedicine policies are staying the same for now. Some worry it's too soon to end the declaration. Howard Markell is a medical historian at the University of Michigan. People are tired. Three years is a long, long, long time for this kind of stuff. I get that. But what I would say is that be careful out there. Markell notes the end of the declaration is not the end of COVID. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. U.S. futures contracts are trading slightly higher at last check. This is NPR. 
From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts public health emergency because of COVID ends today as well. It'll mean many things, including that tomorrow, patients and many clinicians can take off their masks in healthcare settings. But WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports some people are concerned that pandemic-era policies are ending too soon. A group of public health advocates called the Massachusetts Coalition for Health Equity argues the end of universal masking in medical facilities will put patients at risk. Laura Sabadini is disabled and immunocompromised. A COVID infection could be dangerous for her. Now that masking in hospitals will be optional, she's rethinking whether to get a procedure she needs. Every time I try to take advantage of something like a lull in cases to go to an appointment or to be hospitalized for care that I need, a policy changes and it steals away some of that safety. State health officials say their decision to lift the mask mandate reflects science and the low number of COVID cases. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Thayal-McCluskey. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants the city council to finalize a new electoral map in less than three weeks. A judge ruled this week that maps redrawn last year over-prioritized race as a factor in redistricting. City Councilor Ruzi Luizen says the group in charge of the maps will move quickly to address issues raised by the federal court. You have the Voting Rights Act on one side, and you have the requirements of the Constitution on the other. That's a delegate balance, and you have to get it right. We can do that uh, within a two-week period. Mayor Wu also wants to extend filing deadlines for this fall's elections to accommodate candidates and consider new district lines. Several Massachusetts lawmakers say they're concerned about reports the State Department of Correction is denying required accommodations for incarcerated people with hearing disabilities. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representatives Ayanna Presley and Jim McGovern sent a letter to the DOC commissioner about the issue. They say they've received multiple reports the department is limiting access to special telephones used by people who are deaf and hard of hearing. There's been no response yet from the DOC. A federal judge tossed out the conviction of a Linfield man involved in the nationwide college admission scandal. John Wilson was convicted of mail and wire fraud after paying over $1 million in bribes to get his kids into elite schools. A federal judge says the legal theory used by the government to prosecute Wilson was flawed. It's unclear how this ruling will affect other defendants in the case. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. The Red Sox beat Atlanta 5-2 to two last night. The Sox are off today. They'll host the St. Louis Cardinals tomorrow. Tonight, it's win or season over for the Celtics. They'll visit the Philadelphia 76ers for Game 6 of their playoff series. Boston trails in that series three games to two. Mostly sunny today with a slight chance for showers this afternoon. It'll be in the upper 70s. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with another thread of showers. In the 80s, more of the same for Saturday. It's 59 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. And a quick reminder, if your mom, wife, or daughter loves flowers, send them Winston Flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBUR a strong future. Choose from orchids, roses, or peonies for Mother's Day or seasonal flowers every month. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org.
WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The head of the U.S. Border Patrol says up to 65,000 people are near the southern border and ready to cross. Some estimates are far higher, but whatever the exact number, people are in position as pandemic restrictions expire today. The policy, known as Title 42, made it easier for the U.S. to deport asylum seekers and others. The big question now is whether the end of this policy will encourage a lot more people to cross. U.S. border officials are suggesting there's less to worry about than it may have seemed. NPR's Joel Rose is getting a look for himself. He's in El Paso, Texas. Hey there, Joel. Hey, Steve. What are you seeing? Well, there are migrants on the street in downtown El Paso. They are not hard to find, but there are not as many as you would have seen here, say, in December. Hmm. Borderwide, there have been more than 10,000 migrant apprehensions per day now for several days in a row, and the number of people in Border Patrol holding facilities is way above their official capacity. There are upwards of 26,000 migrants in those facilities as of yesterday afternoon. That is according to the Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz. Ortiz says that number actually is down slightly from yesterday morning. He believes what's happening this week is the spike that people have been waiting for and that he does not expect to see another big jump after Title 42 lifts. Ortiz told reporters here that there are about 60 to 65,000 migrants waiting near the border to cross, though, as you have noted, other estimates are much, much higher than that. And if those higher estimates are right, it could really overwhelm the resources of the Border Patrol and local communities. Okay, so at least from the Border Patrol, an indication that this may not be that bad. Of course, we have to wait and see what is El Paso doing to prepare for whatever happens. They are not taking any chances. They've opened an emergency shelter at a former middle school here to house migrants temporarily if necessary. El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser said that he had visited Juarez yesterday just across the border in Mexico, talked to officials there, and that the number of migrants in Juarez seemed to be down from just a few days ago. You've seen the numbers decline. We've seen the numbers are down, but we don't know what's coming in the next days. We know that uh, they'll continue to come and we'll continue to make sure that uh, we help them. These are migrants who are fleeing from violence and poverty and political instability, fleeing from countries all over the Western Hemisphere. But in practice, most of the migrants we're seeing here are from Venezuela and other South American countries. Twice you've had the indication from people of the numbers declining rather than increasing. Are you hearing from any of the migrants themselves? Yeah, we talked to one migrant named Lilibeth Ramirez, who came from Colombia, along with her partner and their four-year-old son. And she said they had been deliberately watching the situation at the border closely and made the decision to cross before Title 42 lifts. Sí, claro. Porque sabíamos... Of course, we knew that if we crossed before the 11th, the chances of being allowed to stay here were better for us. Her assessment is that U.S. authorities are going to begin cracking down on illegal border crossings and it will get harder for migrants to come in after Title 42. But that is just one family. You know, other migrants we've talked with are confused about what the end of Title 42 is going to mean. And many could reach a very different conclusion and decide to cross later. True, but it's very interesting what you are hearing from that one person because the Biden administration has been saying they're making big changes to border policy that will still make it hard for people to cross when Title 42 ends. Sounds like she believes them. What are they doing? Yeah, the Biden administration has rolled out this combination of new legal pathways and and much tougher restrictions on asylum at the border. The administration published its final text of of a new rule on asylum yesterday and they say they will begin enforcing that rule tomorrow. 
Well, NPR's Joel Rose will keep looking for the reality as it unfolds rather than just the fear of what may happen. Joel, thanks so much. You bet. NPR's Joel Rose is in El Paso, Texas, and watching. Former President Trump appeared on a CNN town hall event last evening. The presidential candidate repeated his claims about the election he lost in 2020. He said he would pardon a large portion of people who attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Our analyst, Domenico Montanaro, writes at NPR.org that he lashed out at E. Jean Carroll, the woman who just won a defamation suit against him. Trump even re-endorsed his famous Access Hollywood tape in which he said of grabbing women, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. When it was over, President Biden asked on Twitter, do you want four more years of that? Sarah Longwell joins us next. She is a Republican strategist and founder of the Republican Accountability Project. Welcome. Thanks for having me. There's a bit of a delay on the line, but we'll get through that. We'll just note uh, for people that you're no fan of Donald Trump, but you know Republican voters. You regularly listen to them in focus groups, small groups of people in a room. Did the former president do himself any favors last night? He probably didn't do himself favors with any swing voters, but he continues to cement his place as the front runner in the GOP primary. The thing that jumped out at me last night was the audience. The audience was clapping and cheering, even at parts that felt uh, deeply horrible and inappropriate, like when he was attacking Eugene Carroll. But it, it was a reminder, I think, for people, and I know people are, are angry about uh, that performance last night, but it's a reminder that a lot of these voters uh, in Republican primaries are still very much on board with the former president, despite all his baggage. Um, and I hear that from two-time Trump voters in these focus groups all the time, uh, which is that, you know, no matter what he's done, they still have this deep relationship with him and they're still interested in seeing him uh, run again. He got me thinking last night about the difference between fact and narrative. If you talk about individual facts, Trump lost all of his cases in the 2020 election. There's no evidence that's uh, emerged of any kind of, of uh, any, any credibility whatsoever about widespread fraud. But he's got this narrative that I was robbed, they're out to get me. Uh, is that narrative what resonates with these two-time Trump voters that you're describing? That's right. You know, Trump tells them uh, a story that they're willing to believe. I mean, one of the things that that is striking to me is that, you know, Trump's uh, 2024 rivals, people like Ron DeSantis, they're making an argument about electability. They're more electable than Trump. And the problem with that argument is that 70 percent of the Republican Party believes that Donald Trump won the last election. And um, one of the things I, I because Donald Trump is able to sort of say things in this way where he repeats them over and over again, and then the right-wing kind of infotainment media becomes this megaphone for it. When I listen to the voters, what I hear them do is they say Donald Trump's words right back to you. You know, after he was indicted, uh, and he would say, you know, if you can, do, they can do this to me, they can do this to you. And voters in the focus groups would say that. And you'd say, well, what do you think about Trump getting indicted? And they say, well, it really makes me afraid because if they can do it to Donald Trump, they can do it to me. And so this is where Donald Trump is able to create almost his own reality. I mean, that's what was happening last night. It was Caitlin Collins trying to confront him with facts and Donald Trump weaving an entirely 
alternate reality that a lot of his supporters are on board with because they live in that world. They live in that reality. I find this very interesting because we also have this image of the relatively sophisticated Trump voter who says, I understand that that he says so many things that are fake, that are false. I don't believe them all, but I believe in particular policies that he pursues. I believe in fighting against the enemies that he has. You're telling me, no, when you go into these regular focus groups with two-time Trump voters, you find a lot of people who see the world as he does. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things I, I try to always explain to people is that, you know, every sort of Trump primary voter is not the same. Like right now, there is a chunk of the Republican Party that wants to move on from Trump. They are interested in an alternative candidate. They understand that Trump has maybe too much baggage to be electable, that he's problematic for a variety of ways. Um, and those people often have been sort of DeSantis uh, curious. But then there's this other chunk of the party, I tend to call them always Trumpers. And those are people for whom uh, Trump has become their entire locus uh, of politics. And so everybody doesn't always view things the same, but they are the sort of end result of accepting Trump as the GOP nominee and the only person who will fight hard uh, for their values. They all kind of arrive at that same conclusion. Sarah Longwell, thanks very much. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. She is a Republican strategist and the founder of the Republican Accountability Project. Nicki Minaj, Megan Thee Stallion, Lola Brooke, Glorilla. There is no shortage of talented women rappers. But how many rappers are four years old? My name is Ben Ben. I ain't trying to play. Playing outside every day. Yeah. Playing outside every day. Playing outside every day. Savannah McConaughey of Charlotte, North Carolina, goes by Van Van. Hey, tell everybody what your name is. My name is Van Van. I'm gonna turn it up. Hey. If they say I'm hot. Hey. I'm gonna burn it up. Hey. Van Van has millions of views on TikTok and Instagram. I feel happy. Everybody dancing to it and singing to it. And she's got her favorite topics. I like to rap about my ABCs and one through threes, and it makes me happy. The hype man, heard in the videos, is Van Van's dad, Reggie McConaughey. What you gotta say, Van? Look, power plant. Yeah. I just go through like a numerous of beats on my laptop and she'd be like, Daddy, I don't like that beat or Daddy, I like that beat. I just kind of give her a subject like, hey, rap about this. You know, she just kind of comes up with what she says. She just does an excellent job. He posts her videos with hashtags like Black Girl Magic and Brown Skin Girl. My daughter's a beautiful young lady, and I, I want to make sure that people see how beautiful she is. She's beautiful to me, beautiful to her mom. Her spirit is beautiful. Van Van's mom, Kenya, and dad, Reggie, say they know child stardom isn't easy. Me and her mom talks about this all the time. We kind of pray about some things and just let God lead us in the right direction. We don't want to jump on anything, be too hasty because right now we're just having fun. Other projects could shine an even brighter spotlight on Van Van. We recorded her song, Playing Outside Every Day, her first single, and then we're shooting the video in June. Soon she'll be on the big screen. She was in a movie as well, so she has the red carpet event for that movie in July. It's just a lot of good things going on. Although Van Van says the really big deal is what's coming in August. I'm having a baby sister. It feels so exciting, and I'm going to school on August. Plus, a little playing outside every day. 
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, we have a preview of this weekend's presidential and parliamentary elections in Turkey. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is facing the most significant challenge ever to his two-decade rule. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. GardnerMuseum.org. BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company. Offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, host of WBUR's All Things Considered. If you grew up listening to public radio from the back seat of your mom's car, maybe now's the time to thank her. Send her gorgeous Winston flowers and send them from WBUR to support what's become your favorite station. We can deliver the flowers almost anywhere in eastern Massachusetts. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Mostly sunny and a high near 79 today. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the United States Postal Service, Reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at ScrippsNews.com forward slash TV. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldin. On Sunday, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will face the biggest challenge to his grip on power since first taking the reins as prime minister two decades ago. In those 20 years, he's morphed from a democratic figure favored by the West into what people call Turkey's new autocrat. And Sonar Çaptay, director of the Turkish research program at the Washington Institute, says this election will seal Erdogan's political fate. Either two decades of rule by President Erdogan will come to an end, and Turkey will revert back to democracy and rule of law, or Erdogan will win and he'll stay at Turkey's helm while he's alive as Turkey's new sultan. Erdogan's neck and neck at the polls with his opponent Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, so he's campaigning around the country in advance of the vote. Susie Hansen is a journalist who's covered much of Erdogan's time in office. In the first 10 years, Erdogan was not a member or part of longtime political parties. He didn't have his own wealthy business class. So he built it, taking contracts away from the old secular business class and giving that business to his allies. His party was also siphoning off funds from all of this largesse. 
He was also distributing money through these charity networks that he had. So he was also building up loyalty within the lower classes or the middle class. You know, we often talk about authoritarian leaders and they repress civil society. But I think that the question always is, well, how did they get away with repressing civil society? And it was in part because the rest of the country that was voting for him didn't really seem to mind because they were benefiting so much from his power. He was empowering a part of the country that had long felt ignored. People like him. Again, Sonar Chaptai of the Washington Institute. Having written his biography, I have concluded that Erdogan always felt second class because he was on the other side of the tracks. He was from a poor family. He was also on the other side of the tracks because he was from a conservative family that wanted to wear religion on their sleeves. At the time, Turkey was secularist, and that meant that religion had no space in public policy, education, or government. People like Erdogan and his family felt othered. And so Erdogan became what journalist Hansen describes as a genuine politician. Erdogan was a, a community organizer. His election in 1994 as the mayor of Istanbul and then again in 2002-2003 as prime minister was a democratic revolution. Now, he got lucky. There was a massive earthquake in Istanbul in 1999 and there was a massive financial crisis. So those two events had discredited all the previous political parties. Erdogan and his party were elected as the alternative. And Chaptai says while empowering himself and his party, he was also delivering on some of those voter demands. He has delivered growth, improved access to the services such as health care, and he has lifted so many people out of poverty that he genuinely has a base that loves him. But in the second decade of his time in office, Erdogan became a very different ruling figure. He started facing a lot of threats, both from within his own party and from the opposition. And that was when he started centralizing power around his own person, changing the laws, changing the legal system, transforming the state, and then eventually changing the parliamentary system into this kind of super presidency in which the entire state was organized around him. So was it his paranoia that led him to this place? I mean, what would you say is the watershed moment? I think the first time he was genuinely afraid for his own power was the 2013 Gezi protests in which thousands of people objected to the building of a mall on a park in Istanbul. And the protests spread to 70 cities around the country. And essentially this was an uprising against overdevelopment and corruption. And the second was definitely the military coup in 2016. That's when a faction of Turkey's military tried and failed to overthrow Erdogan. He called citizens into the streets to stop the military. Some 300 people died in clashes. And when his position was secured, he began a series of purges and mass arrests in the ranks of the military, the government, civil servants. And today he's repressing his critics, jailing journalists, critics on social media, among others. Then came an economic downturn, and this year, earthquakes that have left Turks devastated. <laughs> Buildings collapsed and buried people alive. Tens of thousands died and millions more were made homeless. And many Turks blamed Erdogan for shoddy construction because he's accused of allowing developers to skirt safety rules. So it was an earthquake and a demand by voters that someone clean up corruption that brought Erdogan to power. And on Sunday, that same dynamic may sweep him out of power. But even before this, Erdogan was facing growing discontent. People are hungry. People cannot afford meat. 
They can't afford food. They can't afford diapers. They can't afford, you know, basic things, the basic um, vegetables for the Turkish diet. You know, they're really struggling. I mean, I had one young man say to me, if you watch the Turkish news, which is controlled by Erdogan, all they're telling us is that life is great. And meanwhile, I can't afford onions. They see this contradiction. And I heard from so many people that they were going to change their vote this time. Erdogan has what looks like the advantage in this election. He still has a loyal base of support. He controls much of the media. He has almost full control of every branch of government. But that power has also united his opponents in a deeply polarized Turkey. Six different parties are aligned against him. Those voters range from secularists to right-wing nationalists to Kurds, um, which is a very unusual alliance. And so for him, we're looking at the possibility that after over 20 years in power that he will lose. But very few people think that he will go easily or quietly. If he loses, he would be facing at least half of the country that has been very angry at him for a long time. That was Susie Hansen, a journalist who's covered Turkey for over a decade, and Sonar Çaptay. He's the director of the Turkish Research Program at the Washington Institute. On Sunday, if no one gets more than half the vote, there will be a runoff on May 28th. This is NPR News. Welcome to Thursday. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, officers at a Massachusetts prison may be under investigation by federal officials for allegations of brutality. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The pandemic border restriction known as Title 42 expires today. Tens of thousands of migrants are gathered on Mexico's side of the Rio Grande, waiting to cross to the U.S. side. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is repeating her call for Congress to raise the federal government's borrowing authority and prevent the U.S. from defaulting on its debts. A default is frankly unthinkable. Um... America should never default. Yellen was speaking earlier today in Japan, where she's attending a meeting of G7 finance ministers. President Biden is scheduled to meet again with congressional leaders at the White House tomorrow to talk about raising the debt ceiling. They met earlier this week. The EPA is proposing a new rule targeting emissions from power plants in the U.S., NPR's Jeff Brady says the change would all but eliminate carbon dioxide from coal and gas-fired plants. Big coal and gas-fired plants that run all the time, they'd have to capture 90 percent of their carbon dioxide emissions that come out of smokestacks or burn some clean forms of hydrogen. And these changes have to come pretty quickly. President Biden has a goal of zeroing out greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector by 2035. Some plants, including those set to shut down in the next few years, would face less stringent limits. 
This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former President Donald Trump continued to spread lies about the 2020 election last night in New Hampshire in a live televised town hall. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Trump used the CNN event to double down on a long list of grievances. Before the town hall at St. Anselm College, critics decried CNN's decision to give a platform to Trump, who has a long record of trafficking in lies. He continued that last night, saying the 2020 election was stolen. He refused to acknowledge his role in inciting the deadly January 6th insurrection. And he claimed again that he never met writer E. Jean Carroll, a day after a federal jury found him liable for sexually assaulting and defaming her. Addison Kilty was among a number of St. Anselm students protesting Trump's appearance. Why we're here tonight has more to do with the risk of platforming someone like Donald Trump who has incited attacks on our democracy. CNN said the event was part of a long tradition of hosting presidential town halls. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Massachusetts has launched an effort to get more residents mental health services. It's running a series of ads to highlight the state's new behavioral health hotline. Brooke Doyle is commissioner of the Department of Mental Health. She says callers to the hotline are often seeking preventative help. Before a crisis occurs, what we're seeing is that the most commonly requested assistance that people are seeking is access to what's considered routine outpatient treatment. More than 6,000 people have placed calls to the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Helpline since it went live in January. Brookline has a new police chief. Jennifer Pastor was sworn in yesterday. She's served as acting chief since last year. Pastor took over when the former police chief was fired due to sexual harassment allegations. She's been with the Brookline Department for over two decades. Somerville residents will be able to take free taxis to grocery stores and medical appointments for a while longer. The city extended its Taxi to Health program through October 2024. It lets residents with limited income apply for 12 free taxi vouchers every three months. Lisa Robinson is Somerville's Director of Food Access and Healthy Communities. People have grocery stores that they like to go to, but it's hard to get to if they don't have a car. They're either paying for a cab, they're taking a bus that takes 45 minutes. This was a great way to make progress on a goal to improve the intersection of transportation and food access. The vouchers provide trips to grocery stores, farmers markets, and food pantries in Somerville and to medical appointments in Greater Boston. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. It's a do-or-die game for the Celtics tonight. The, they trailed their best-of-seven playoff series against the Philadelphia 76ers three games to two. Adam Frenier has a preview of tonight's game. Celtics fans entered the playoffs with hopes of a return trip to the NBA Finals, but the Sixers have proven to be a stubborn foe. Boston had a two-games-to-one series lead, but lost a one-point heartbreaker in overtime in Philadelphia Sunday. Then, the Celtics failed to defend their home court in Tuesday's game, which was a decisive Sixers victory. The series now shifts back to Philly, which will make the task even more difficult for Boston. Should they win, a seventh and deciding game would be Sunday with the Celtics hosting. The Celtics have won the last five playoff series against Philadelphia, dating back to 1985. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. 
The Red Sox beat Atlanta 5-2 last night. The Sox are off today. They'll be back home to host the Cardinals tomorrow. Mostly clear skies today with highs near 80, partly cloudy tonight and a low in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds with a slight chance of showers. Highs will be in the low 80s. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston. And we want to let you know that WBUR is partnering with Winston Flowers so you can send the perfect gift for Mother's Day and support our independent journalism. This is a big fundraiser for us and an easy way to do two good things at once. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs, from hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. New legal documents suggest federal investigators are looking into allegations of brutality at a Massachusetts maximum security prison. Some prisoners allege that they were beaten and abused in retaliation for an attack on correction officers at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in January of 2020. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports that a federal investigation could determine whether state officials face criminal charges. The mention of a potential federal investigation is contained in documents in a civil suit over the state's response to the 2020 attack on guards at Sousa. Defense attorney Patty DeJunis represents one of the two prisoners in that civil suit who alleged that scores of inmates were brutalized because of the attack. My clients filed a federal civil rights lawsuit seeking to vindicate their rights and make lasting change within the Department of Corrections because of a massive uh, planned assault on approximately 100 inmates. In her client's suit, as well as in separate class action litigation, prisoners allege that special teams of officers entered Sousa after the attack and used gas, tasers, and dogs to punish the men in custody. In a new motion, DeJunis says there have been delays in the proceedings because federal investigators are looking into those accusations. For at least a year, there's been a federal grand jury investigating. My clients testified. I know of other prisoners who testified. Um, So I feel pretty confident that at least what happened to my clients is under investigation. A federal grand jury operates in secrecy. The Massachusetts U.S. Attorney's Office says it does not confirm or deny an investigation. Former federal prosecutor Brad Bailey says the Fed's involvement would be significant. There may well be uh, a parallel federal investigation or a primary federal investigation looking at alleged violations of civil rights. Bailey says a grand jury could decide to return indictments against prison officials over the response at Sousa. My guess is uh, whatever allegations, whatever evidence has been presented to the U.S. attorney is being taken very seriously and is being thoroughly vetted. The Department of Correction does not comment on litigation. In previous statements about the violence at Sousa, the DOC has said it took swift action to restore order and prevent more assaults after the 2020 attack. The department has denied any wrongdoing and said any allegations of staff misconduct are thoroughly investigated. 
The statute of limitations for a federal grand jury to issue indictments is five years from the time an alleged crime occurred. That deadline is little more than a year and a half away. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Republicans in Ohio have approved a plan to try to make it harder to amend the state constitution. This decision prompted protests in the state house. They're chanting no on one, which is the number of the measure. The audio is from WWS News 5 in Cleveland. The legislature does not get the final say here. Their vote sends the question to voters in Ohio in August. Karen Kassler of the Ohio State House News Bureau, which is a public media organization in Columbus, joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What exactly is being put to the voters in August? Well, in Ohio, constitutional amendments can be proposed by state lawmakers or by citizens or groups, but they always have to be approved by voters. So this is a resolution from Republican state lawmakers who are in the supermajority that would ask voters to increase the threshold to pass an amendment from a simple majority to 60 percent. But for future constitutional amendments, not for this one. Mm. Now, right now, two states require a 60 percent threshold for all amendments, Florida and Illinois. Okay, so I'm just thinking this through. Lawmakers will put the question to voters uh, in August, which is not a time that's traditionally associated with elections, so maybe they're hoping for low turnout. Uh, They put this question to voters, and if a simple majority of the people who happen to show up approve it, it then becomes much harder for voters to approve future changes in the Constitution. Why on earth would they do this now? Well, Republicans have been saying since last fall that they want to protect Ohio's Constitution from what they call big money out of state special interests. But one of the sponsors said in a memo to his fellow Republicans that this is about stopping likely amendments on abortion and gerrymandering. Last year, Ohio's congressional and legislative maps were drawn by lawmakers and they were ruled unconstitutionally gerrymandered by the Ohio Supreme Court. So Ohio has a six-week abortion ban. That's on hold by the court. And after the Dobbs decision here, abortion rights groups have been in the process of gathering hundreds of thousands of signatures to put a reproductive rights and abortion access amendment before voters on the general election ballot in November. So Republican lawmakers would like that 60 percent threshold in place before voters decide on that reproductive rights amendment. But they were unable to pass it for the May primary, so now they're looking at August. And by the way, on that big money special interest note, there's already a lot of money surrounding this resolution and special election in this And for supporters, nearly all of it is coming from a Republican billionaire from Illinois. Okay, so uh, vote on making the Constitution harder to change in August. Possible vote in November on uh, putting abortion into the state Constitution and the rules would apply to that. What do opponents say of this Republican measure? Well, there have been two pretty big protests bringing in hundreds of people after weeks of testimony where people came in to testify against this idea. Some of the people are supporters of the resolution and the special election, and those supporters include anti-abortion organizations, evangelical Christian groups, gun rights advocates, and Ohio's restaurants, which are worried about an amendment that would increase the minimum wage. But the crowd yesterday was overwhelmingly against this idea. Demonstrators from some of the hundreds 
hundreds of groups that are opposed were there. Most of those groups are aligned with Democrats, but the plan is also opposed by the bipartisan elections officials who would have to conduct the election, and also the Libertarian Party, five former state attorneys general from both parties, and Ohio's four living ex-governors, two Republicans and two Democrats. Is it legal? Could you challenge in court the idea of changing the rules of the game to prevent uh, any anything that you don't like? Well, when, when it comes to Ohio's elections, there's always the possibility of a lawsuit. The question now is whether this resolution is trying to change a law that took effect in April. And that's going to be the question is whether it's legal or not. Karen Kessler of the Ohio Statehouse News Bureau in Columbus. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. It's a Thursday on WBOR. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, a new report from the Committee to Protect Journalists shows 20 members of the media have been killed by Israeli military fire since 2001. Near 80 today under mostly sunny skies. There's a slight chance of showers later this afternoon. Tonight it grows partly cloudy and falls to the upper 50s. Tomorrow we end the week with a partly overcast day. In the low 80s, there's another slight chance of showers around midday. It's 62 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Cambridge-based Bicycle Therapeutics is signing a deal worth up to nearly $2 billion with the pharmaceutical giant Bayer. Under the agreement, Bicycle will work to discover and develop new cancer drugs for the German drug maker. A black Boston restaurant owner will open her new venture in the seaport today. It's called Grace by Nia, and it's run by Nia Grace. She says it will bring Southern-inspired food and live music to the neighborhood. Grace also owns Daryl's Corner Bar and Kitchen and the Underground Cafe and Lounge. Both are in Roxbury. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices, and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. A year ago today, Palestinian-American journalist Tureen Abu Akla was killed while doing her job reporting in the West Bank. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, her death was not a tragic one-time event, but actually part of a long, deadly pattern. A new report from the group says at least 20 journalists have been killed by Israeli military fire since 2001, and it says, quote, to date, no one has been held accountable. Robert Mani is with the committee and helped edit the report and is here with us now to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning. First, would you just tell us uh, a bit more about the 20 journalists killed? Well, of the 20 killed, 18 were Palestinians. One was a British national and one was an Italian. And all of them were killed reporting on the ground from the West Bank or Gaza over the last two decades. So so it's been a year since, as we said, since Shireen Abu Akhla was killed. Authorities have had that much time to investigate it and no one's been held responsible. Why? Why is that? That's because we believe that the whole 
system of investigation which the Israeli armed forces have set up is actually designed to evade responsibility and to protect its soldiers from prosecution. When the authorities do open a, an, any kind of probe, it takes a long time. Evidence can get lost. Witnesses can forget their testimony. So no one is being held to account, and no one is being held to account for the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, who, let's remember, was an American citizen. So how have uh, Israeli officials responded to claims that they're responsible for these deaths? And I'm also interested in whether they've responded to the allegations in the report that, that in fact, the investigations are kind of designed to obscure the facts. Yeah, we've been in touch with the Israeli authorities throughout the reporting of this report. And I am now in Jerusalem where we uh, presented the report. The Israeli authorities say they do not deliberately target civilians and they respect press freedom. And what we think is, if that's the case, then they should open investigations into the killings of these journalists who, let's remember, are civilians and should be given the, the protections afforded to civilians in a time of conflict. They should not be shot at, as many were. Of the 20 dead, there are, to add to those, there are hundreds who were badly wounded over this, this case. And there is one investigation that's been opened, and it's a very important investigation, and that's by the FBI, because Shireen was a U.S. citizen. Now, the committee does have some recommendations about what could be done to prevent more journalist deaths. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Uh, what needs to be done is the, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces needs to review its rules of engagement. Its rules of engagement are confidential, as are its probes. So we don't know what they are. In contrast to the United States Army, for example, where we do exactly know what the rules of engagement are, and U.S. forces amend those uh, rules of engagement on a frequent basis. So we want the Israelis to look at that. We want them to open uh, investigations into these killings, and we want them to cooperate with the FBI investigation, and they have refused to do so. And finally, before we let you go, 20 seconds here, but has there been any response to those recommendations? From the Israeli side, no. Uh, no one in the Israeli government has agreed to meet with us, although we do get a very uh, friendly reception from Israeli journalists who, like the rest of us, rely on these Palestinians to bring us the news. Okay, that's Robert Money with the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, a look at how Harry Truman's fight against corruption as a U.S. senator helped shape World War II. It's 7.50. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When I was a kid growing up in England, my mother's favorite BBC radio station broadcast a radio play every afternoon. My brother and I would usually get home from school a few minutes before the play was about to end. We knew better than to say a word. We'd slide into our usual seats at the kitchen table. Mom would put the kettle on, cut us each a slice of homemade cake. Then we would sit in silence until the play ended and my mother returned from whatever cozy farmhouse, smuggler's den, foreign paradise or planet she had been transported to. I get my love of radio and its ability to transport us anywhere from her. Thanks, Mom. If you're looking for a meaningful way to say thanks to your mum on Mother's Day and support great storytelling at the same time, consider Winston Flowers from WBUR. Choose the perfect gift 
at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The state and federal public health emergencies related to COVID end today. U.S. troops are heading to the southern border to help with an expected increase of migrants as pandemic-era immigration restrictions also come to an end today. Israel says it killed a top Palestinian commander in a strike on an apartment in Gaza. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. The Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Mostly sunny and temperatures near 80 today. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 752. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have a little-known chapter in the life of a well-known president. Harry S. Truman of Missouri assumed office when Franklin Roosevelt died in 1945. That was near the end of World War II. Truman oversaw the Allied victory in Europe and also ordered the use of a new kind of weapon against Japan. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. President Biden expects to witness some of Truman's legacy next week when he visits Japan, which is now a U.S. ally, and while there stops at Hiroshima, which on Truman's orders was destroyed. In many ways, Truman presided over the creation of the world order we live in now. But how did Truman ever rise to that position in the first place? Our colleague Steve Drummond investigated that story by researching an earlier part of Truman's political career. In 1941, shortly before the U.S. entered the war, Senator Harry S. Truman set up a Senate committee. He began investigating the massive U.S. spending to prepare for war. Drummond writes of Truman's work in a new book called The Watchdog. Franklin Roosevelt was not crazy about this idea um, of a junior unknown senator poking his business into the administration's handling of the defense buildup at the time. There was very fierce opposition in the Senate among Truman's Senate leaders. However, it soon became clear that if a Democrat didn't do this, there were plenty of Republicans itching to launch their own investigations. So what they did was toss Truman a bone. They gave him a teeny tiny appropriation. They said, you go it. It was a bit of a steam valve to say, hey, it looks like we're keeping an eye on things. And nevertheless, Truman took that little bitty uh, window and, and drove a truck to it. What did Truman find? So... Not surprisingly, in this incredible race to get the U.S. ready for war, there were contracts being let overnight, over the phone, handshake deals. Many of them would go on to, you know, be the story that we know, help win the war. But there was a lot of money being spent, a lot of it being wasted. There was some corruption. There was just incredible mismanagement. With the army camps, their very first report, they found $100 million being wasted on army camps. They found that... After World War I, when the government had done this once, nobody could find the plans for building army camps. He criticized the army for building camps, what he said, along Civil War lines. There was no 
concrete for parking tanks. There were no facilities for mechanized war, which that was the deal. That was the way war was being fought, and the Army was you know, way outdated. And so the very first report was very critical, made headlines around the country, and it got the Truman Committee started. In addition to saving money, did this save lives? Impossible to count that number, I say in the book. It's very difficult. But yes, there were the landing boats that famously took the men ashore at D-Day and on islands in the Pacific. The Navy had stubbornly favored a very dangerous and poor design of its own making when there was a New Orleans businessman who had invented a much better design. That businessman, Andrew Higgins, went to Truman and said, hey, help me out here. Truman came up with the idea. He told the Navy. Take your design and his design. Let's put them together in a test and see how they work. I just want to pause for a moment. You go to New Orleans today. That's where the D-Day Museum yes, is. Yes, exactly. And it's in a large part because of Andrew Jackson Higgins, who designed this boat. He couldn't get the Navy to listen to him. Now, we mentioned that FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, did not love this. But it seems that over time he grew to like it. Yes. And we found some archival tape here. This is Harry S. Truman himself talking about his work on the committee and the way that Roosevelt began to realize he could use this guy. Let's listen. And also, you and I are going to look here at this video of him. He'd call me up and ask me to come down to the White House. And I'd go down there. And I'd say, Mr. President, what's on your mind? And he'd say, so-and-so over here is upsetting the apple cart. We're trying to do something with him without ourselves upsetting the apple cart. I want you to get after him. Well, I'd usually get after him, and we'd straighten him out. He didn't have to do anything. I wanted to just have somebody say that good-for-nothing Truman's going to come and investigate you, and then they'd do the right thing. And that's all there was to it. Now, here. Ah, I wish smile. I just love the look of joy on his face. Steve, you have to say, Truman's a lot of fun. It's very fun to <laughs> it's very fun to write about him. One of the very smart things Truman did was his goal was not to call a public hearing, not to get this on the front page. A lot of times he would call up the Secretary of the Army and say, Hey, something's going on over here. Or, hey, Secretary of the Navy, fix this. And if they did, fine. Truman was perfectly happy to see not to have Roosevelt be embarrassed. It was when the military or the defense contractors would stonewall Truman. He had a terrible temper. When he didn't get what he wanted, that's when he would issue subpoenas. He would go to a public hearing. I'm thinking that in the end, Franklin Roosevelt chose Truman to be the vice president for his fourth term. Does this mean that Roosevelt came to trust Truman as well as to use Truman. Yes. Truman was a very loyal soldier to the New Deal. He admired Franklin Roosevelt greatly. Everyone at the time who was in the know knew that Franklin Roosevelt was not a well man, that he might not likely survive his next term. So there was a lot of drama over who would be the vice president, most likely the next president. And slowly, Truman's name rose to the top of the list. And it was finally Roosevelt at the Chicago convention, who got on the phone and told Truman to take it. Truman didn't want to be vice president. Didn't want to be vice president. Well, Steve, many, many people then and since have said they don't want to be vice president. By all accounts, Truman actually meant it. Truman very reluctantly was sort of drawn into taking this job. I'm having a memory of Senator Truman, who enjoyed meeting other congressional leaders for a drink. And when he became vice president, he tried to drop by and they said, actually, you can't come here anymore. It's constitutionally inappropriate. <laughs> yes, yes. It was, uh, it was a different time. Yeah, yeah. But what does this say about our time and Congress today? I think the biggest legacy of the Truman Committee was Truman's invention of this model for scrutinizing giant public expenditures. And virtually every time we have a giant expense bill, $1.5 trillion for pandemic relief or whatever, we see calls from people all over the country saying, you know, we need a new Truman Committee to look into this. We should take a look at this. Has writing this book affected the way that you think about the news that you cover today? Oh, very much so. It's 
we live in a time when when a lot of people have contempt for the people who serve them in Washington, and it seems that contempt is reciprocated. And the Truman Committee was a time at which people all over the country looked and they saw, here's a guy in Washington looking out for us thousands of times during the war. I've read these letters in the National Archives. They took their pen, they wrote in, they said, thank you, Senator Truman, you're doing a great job. I have a son overseas. Thanks for looking out for us. It was kind of inspiring. Steve Drummond is the author of The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Steve. Fun talking with you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. New York Republican Congressman George Santos says he'll run for re-election even after his arrest on charges of wire fraud, money laundering, and theft of public funds. It's Thursday, May 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the end of a pandemic immigration restriction could mean asylum seekers wait years for a court date. So the question is, are they going to be able to track this people? And I can tell you right now, no, they're not. Also, new proposed federal rules to reduce pollution from gas and coal-fired power plants. And this hour... The United States government will implement temporary measures to increase our abilities to detect and contain the coronavirus proactively and aggressively. That was more than three years ago as the COVID public health emergency began. We look at what's changing now that it's ending. Mostly sunny in the 70s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Thousands of migrants are waiting at the U.S. southern border as the pandemic-era Title 42, which made it easier for the U.S. to expel people, expires tonight. That has local officials bracing for a rise in the number of people who want to come to the U.S., although it will be harder to claim asylum under the new policy. In Brownsville, Texas, asylum seekers who had been released from federal immigration custody got help from an organization called Team Brownsville. Andrea Rudnick is the group's co-founder. We are here to receive them, to welcome them, and we want their experience in the United States to be a good one where they feel comfortable, where they feel safe bringing their family, settling here, getting jobs, and just becoming part of this community. Meanwhile, as Title 42 ends, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is temporarily weakening the right-to-shelter rule that kept families with children seeking shelter out of large group settings. This after Southern governors bust migrants up to New York. New York Republican Congressman George Santos is out of jail and says he'll get back to work casting votes and running for re-election despite his indictment on 13 federal fraud and theft charges. He remains a key GOP vote in the narrowly divided House, as NPR's Brian Mann reports. George Santos faces severe travel restrictions that limit him to movement only between Washington, D.C. and New York City unless he gets government permission to go elsewhere. He also had to give up his passport while out of jail on a $500,000 bond. But Santos says he plans to keep serving his constituents and hopes to win back their trust in next year's election. He also thanked Republican leaders in Washington for sticking by him. I'm not going to address just the speaker, I'll address leadership. I appreciate everybody's patience with 
with my presence in Congress. But polls show Santos is deeply unpopular in his district. Many local Republicans on Long Island and in Queens say they'll oppose his re-election effort. Brian Mann, NPR News, Islip, New York. The leader of Ukraine's ground forces says his troops have pushed back Russian forces in an eastern city Russia has been fighting to occupy for nearly a year. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports. Colonel Alexander Sirsky wrote on Telegram that Russian forces had retreated from an area in the southwest of the city of Bakhmut. The area is about three square miles. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who leads the private mercenary Wagner Group, appeared to confirm the movement. The Wagner Group has led the Russian offensive in Bakhmut, a brutal battle where both sides have faced enormous losses. Bakhmut has little strategic value, but Ukraine and Russia have both invested heavily in winning it and wearing each other down. Russia still controls most of the city. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Odessa. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state and federal public health emergency for COVID-19 ends today. One of the effects of that will be changes to the way COVID data are collected and reported by state public health officials. Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says data collection from hospitals will shift from a daily to weekly basis. Testing data will also decrease in frequency as people shift from testing at official sites to taking at-home tests. Organizations that have more women and more people of color are more reflective of their customers and their constituents and are more creative, more innovative, more successful and more profitable. Apologies there. That was the wrong sound bite. COVID vaccines will remain free, but reporting on their uptake will become less frequent, putting COVID vaccination reporting in line with reports on other immunization programs. School buses are back on the road today in Marlboro. Drivers with the company North Reading Transportation reached an agreement with the school district last night after striking for three days. Meantime, in Westboro, bus drivers agreed to pause contract negotiations while they decide if they want to keep being represented by a union. A group of Massachusetts state troopers is headed to Washington today to honor a fallen colleague. Trooper Tamar Bucci died in March of 2022. She had stopped to help a vehicle on 93 in Stoneham when her cruiser was hit by a truck. The group of about 50 troopers will make stops on its road trip to D.C. to take part in community service projects. Talena Lang is Bucci's sister. Kindness and community were um, at her, at the core of everything that she she did, and why she became a state trooper. So we are just so so proud to honor her in this way. Bucci's name will be added to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial in Washington next week. Boston University will have an interim leader while it searches for a new president. Associate Provost Kenneth Freeman will take over on August 1st. He was once the head of BU's business school and is former CEO of Quest Diagnostics. The choice is drawing some criticism. Mary Battenfeld is the president of BU's chapter of the American Association of University Professors. The choice of Another white man who comes from the corporate world uh, is a backwards way of walking into the future. 
BU says Freeman is a proven academic and administrative leader and helped transform the university's business school. We should mention that BU holds the broadcast license for WBUR and Freeman serves on the station's board of directors, while BUR is editorially independent. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. The Red Sox topped Atlanta 5-2 last night. Boston closer Kenley Jansen got his 400th career save in the win. He's just the seventh baseball player ever to do that. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Cardinals tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics and Sixers meet for Game 6 of their playoff series. Boston trails three games to two, so it's a must-win for the Celtics. Mostly sunny today with a slight chance for showers this afternoon. It'll be in the upper 70s. Partly cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 50s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with another threat of showers in the 80s. More of the same for Saturday. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 8.08. And time is running out. Sunday is Mother's Day. Honor your mom, your wife, your sister, your daughter, or anyone else with Winston Flowers and send them from WBUR to strengthen our journalism. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Representative George Santos says he's not guilty and that he will not resign. The first-term New York lawmaker appeared in court yesterday to face multiple criminal charges. Now, Santos has admitted that a lot of the resume he touted on his way to getting elected was made up. Now, authorities say he used some of his stories to make money, collecting bogus unemployment claims and campaign contributions for his own benefit. And Pierce Brian Mann was there and joins us now. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Steve. How does Santos defend himself? Well, he says these federal charges are a witch hunt, though I have to say, Steve, he didn't offer an explanation for why federal prosecutors would single him out. These charges are incredibly detailed, alleging Santos used campaign cash to pay for personal luxuries like designer clothes. They say Santos built New York's unemployment system during the pandemic while he had a job. Uh, But speaking outside the courthouse, Santos said he plans to prove the charges are all false. I will get to clear my name. I don't understand where the government's getting their information, but I will present my facts. There was a big contrast between Santos's tone in the courtroom where he was soft-spoken and polite and those fiery interactions outside where he, he promised to fight. I guess we should note he is still a member of Congress. And will he continue casting votes and also, by the way, campaigning for re-election? Yeah, that's right. Just like other lawmakers from both parties who face criminal charges, it doesn't disqualify Santos from serving. He says he's headed back to Washington this week to cast key votes. One wrinkle is that Santos was released on a $500,000 bond with pretty severe restrictions on his travel. He had to give up his passport. He's supposed to remain in Washington or New York City. If he travels anywhere else, he has to get permission from the government. Uh, He's really unpopular in his district, but he said yesterday he thinks he can win back voters' trust. Like I said, uh, I've asked many times, I want to be judged by the work I do in the body, and I, I stay committed to that. 
But uh, this re-election to Ethbert, it's a really tough road if he beats these charges. Uh, remember, he also lied about his career, his education, his family's background, pretty much everything. What are his constituents saying? Well, many are angry. I spoke yesterday with Joshua Silverman, who came to the courthouse to protest against Santos, and I asked why he was there. Because uh, the person that my uh, district sent to Congress is a complete and total fraud. What do you think about the fact that he has been laid with uh, 13 criminal charges? I'm not surprised by it. And uh, quite frankly, I'm expecting more charges. And there are still other investigations underway into Santos's behavior, one by a local district attorney, another by the House Ethics Committee in Washington. I guess we should note it's extraordinary that a lawmaker would tell so many obvious lies, but it is not really that unusual for one lawmaker or another to be under investigation or, or under indictment. Does this particular charge against a very junior lawmaker matter much? Well, George Santos is actually a key vote in this narrowly divided Congress, and and so far Republican leaders are sticking by him. Uh, But this scandal has the potential to drag down other Republicans here in New York who did really well in last year's midterms. Uh, Remember, the Republican Party's winning message in New York has been a tough stance on crime, and now one of their most visible members is serving on the House floor after being arrested. And Santos is uh, scheduled to be back here in court next month. And Pierce Brian Mann. Thanks so much. Now to the other big story we're following. The pandemic-era public health order known as Title 42 expires tonight. It allowed authorities to quickly turn away would-be migrants trying to enter the U.S. It's been widely predicted that the end of Title 42 will encourage many more people to try to enter the U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar is a Democrat from Texas. Part of his district is along the southern border. And he says communities like his are already overwhelmed, and he is not pleased with the administration's response. The administration has given the okay to Border Patrol to start doing street releases. Our colleague A. Martinez spoke with Cuellar earlier and asked what street releases could mean for migrants and border communities. A street release means that, as you know, Border Patrol has very limited facilities, especially women or unaccompanied kids. Then you have the NGOs and the border communities that help and house and provide some food for these folks so they can go find family members. But now we're seeing that a lot of these people don't have sponsors. So somebody's going to end up paying for this. So the NGOs or the border communities do not have space to hold them. Then the Border Patrol has only one option and put them out on the streets of Laredo, streets of McAllen, Brownsville, El Paso, and other border communities. These people are coming in in between ports of entry, so they're not going through the CBP app or the ports of entry. So that means that they're supposed to get a notice to appear in front of an immigration judge that is going to be years from now. So the question is, are they going to be able to track these people? And I can tell you right now, no, they're not. What would you propose instead of what is happening now? not only add asylum officers there at the Border Patrol facilities, but I would have those immigration judges handle those cases. By law, they're supposed to handle the cases within seven days and review what the asylum officer does. And those can be done quickly. The asylum law says you have to be here because there is a persecution by the state in the country that you're in and looking for a better life trying to get away from crime or any of those reasons are not reasons to stay. And I'm sorry, but that's what the law says. 
No, I know the House has a bill on the table. Republican lawmakers aim to vote on their so-called Secure the Border Act. Very restrictive proposal when it comes to asylum. Also cuts programs that give migrants a chance to save. The White House has said that the president would veto it. Um, Are there any parts to that bill, Congressman, that you agree with or support? Yeah, I mean, there are some things that we've been working on for many years, you know, adding more money for technology, adding more money to do the um, roads along the, the border adding more personnel, border patrol, support staff, all that. The problem is that our Republican friends, with all due respect, never sat down with some of us that live on the border. We don't just go visit the border. And I've talked to some Republicans, and look, this is just a messaging bill for them. And the immigration system, Congressman, as you know, has not been reformed in decades. Um, All the measures created seem to be directed at deterring migrants from coming or or maybe even short-term solutions. Uh, You're in Congress. What kind of reform would you like to see? And and you're right. This bill that they're doing is just uh, border security and takes away certain rights of asylum. I feel that we can have sensible border security and still respect the right of legitimate asylum seekers. What would it take for that to happen? Immigration reform is something that we've been talking about for many, many, many years. Sometimes they blame the Republicans, but keep in mind that at the beginning of 2009, we had a supermajority in the Senate of Democrats, 60. We controlled the House and the White House. And guess what? Nothing happened. So we just got to understand that the issue about immigration is not going to go away, and we have to be able to address the issue And I've been here for a few years, and I voted for a full comprehensive immigration reform, a guest worker plan, DREAMers, and sometimes it's the House that does it, sometimes it's the Senate, but, you know, it just doesn't get there. And people are waiting for the perfect bill. It's not going to get there. And if we have to do some incremental steps, I'm now willing to take some incremental steps to address the issues that we need to address. That is Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat from Texas. Congressman, thanks. Thank you so much, and you have a wonderful day. Some other news now. Taiwan is trying to strengthen its defenses against mainland China. And for the first time, the government of the island has started training female reservists. NPR's Emily Fang reports. A drill sergeant yells at volunteer reservists in camouflage as they duck, point, and shoot in a practice drill just outside the Taiwanese city of Taoyuan. Among them are 14 women. Our drills are the exact same as the men's. Why should there be a gender difference, asks one of them, named Lu Boying Sung Ning Ni. The military says getting more women trained for Taiwan's reserve forces is important. Because while the island does have a full-time military, it's tiny, just 190,000 people compared to its 1.6 million reservists. But until this year, only the male reservists got trained. Sung Ming Tung Ni is a bit special. She was actually in the military and retired four years ago. But when reserve training started this year for women, she and the 13 other women signed up. I'm older and my physical ability has declined, she jokes. But she says she saw others stepping up to protect Taiwan, and when duty called her, she answered. And Taiwan needs her as part of efforts to drastically boost its defenses against a more aggressive China. Taiwan's already lengthened compulsive military service for men from four months to a year. 
It's beefed up the reservist training curriculum as well, and now the reserve forces are finally training women, after years of heated debate about gender equality in Taiwan's legislature. But Taiwan's military will only take women who have served in the military before, like Sangni Tamni, and strong gender norms remain even among female officers. Logistics officer Deng Yuqi shows me around a mobile shower tent reservists use and explains when the machinery has issues, they ask the men for help because they're the experts. Women don't understand such things, she says. That kind of statement infuriates many women. More are volunteering, and given the interest and the need, Taiwan's military says it is planning more military training for women this year. I'm Molly Fang, NPR News, Taoyuan, Taiwan. This afternoon, on All Things Considered, we investigate the inspiration for music. Many songs are inspired by other songs. Many also sample older songs. But when does a song cross over from influence to theft? Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Here's an original lyric. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in a couple minutes on Morning Edition. Uh, Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, the state of Virginia is asking for the return of audio tapes of an execution after NPR obtained the tapes and revealed they show the prison neglected to record key evidence. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Mostly sunny and a high near 80 today. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon, in stores or at hintwater.com. From Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scriptsnews.com forward slash TV. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We follow up now on an excruciating story on this network. We should warn people, some people will find this disturbing. NPR broadcast portions of audio recordings of executions in Virginia. 
This was only the second time in history that audio like that had ever been released. NPR investigative reporter Kiara Eisner obtained the tapes from a library where they had sat undisturbed for years. But shortly after NPR aired the tapes, the state asked for them back. Details about capital punishment are some of the government's most closely guarded secrets. But more than a decade ago, a former employee of the Virginia Department of Corrections donated a briefcase filled with records that explained how the state had executed people. An archivist, Roger Chrisman, took me into the stacks to show me where everything was kept at the Library of Virginia in Richmond. Here are the tapes. Wow. Four tapes. Can I look at them? Yeah. The tapes contained audio recorded behind the scenes in the death chamber by prison staff. The inmate is being removed from his cell. It's 11.04, the first surge of electricity has been administered. It is now 11.07. The physician has announced the expiration of the inmate. The man who gave the tapes away also shared hundreds of files that documented the last few days of the prisoners' lives. And at the bottom of his bag was one important set of keys. And then they got what they call ephemera, which is control panel for the electric chair. Quite sure, I mean, we're not a museum, we don't usually take objects, but this seemed pretty significant that we had the keys to the electric chair. One of the documents the employee donated showed that the chair had been turned on for three minutes before a man named Earl Clanton was executed. Another indicated the prison classified his manner of death as a homicide. The envelope of a sealed autopsy report indicated the authorities didn't examine Clanton's body until 21 days after he died. Chrisman told me sharing that kind of history is central to the library's mission. Yeah, our, our ultimate goal is to make records accessible to the public. That's what this entire building and agency is about, regardless of format. The four execution tapes aired for the first time ever on NPR in January. They were also published online, where anyone can still hear them in full. Hi, Mr. Chrisman. This is Dean Ricks. I'm the Director of Administrative Compliance. At the but immediately after NPR aired them, the Department of Corrections called the library with a special request. Um, I'm calling so we can discuss uh, these records and, and getting them returned to the department. Within a week, so the library complied. But they didn't just hand over the tapes. All the other records the employee donated are also now at the Department of Corrections. No one can get them from the library anymore. There's always been this secrecy surrounding the death penalty and the practices around it that dates all the way back to 1877, when the General Assembly voted to build a, a wall around gallows. Dale Brumfield wrote a book about how Virginia abolished the death penalty after the state executed more people than any other. To research it, he referenced some of the execution files in the collection. He says it's a shame others won't get to benefit from them like he did. The Department of Corrections wanted to clamp down on it and put it back under lock and key. They're just covering up the ugliness of the whole thing. Both the Department of Corrections and the Library of Virginia declined my requests for interviews to discuss why the collection was turned over. After I asked to see all the materials through an open records request, Corrections said most were off limits and, quote, private in nature. When I was back with Chrisman in the stacks, I managed to take some pictures of the now-secret files. NPR published those photos online so that people can still see some of the information that Corrections tried to hide. But Chrisman told me then how much it had meant for the employee to know that the complete collection of execution materials would live at the library. He was really happy 
that he could find a home for these records. He thought they were very important. Now it's all behind prison walls again. Kiara Eisner, NPR News. Phoenix has started clearing out its biggest homeless encampment. It's called The Zone, and about a 1,000 people have been living there. In March, a county judge said the city had to clear the camp after several downtown business owners sued. Kirsten Dorman with KJZZ has more. On a windy morning with gray clouds hanging overhead, about a dozen people move suitcases, wooden pallets, and all kinds of belongings out of the tents and other self-made structures that line the sidewalk. And then the structures start coming down. Sarah Bass, who used to live in the zone, is watching. It's like a third world country right here, like, you know what I mean, in the summertime. The zone sprang up around Phoenix's biggest homeless shelter and the neighboring human services campus. Bass says both are overwhelmed. That's why people originally started camping on the outside of it, was because they were waiting their spot in line. Nearby businesses filed the lawsuit against the city last August, saying the zone and its occupants hurt their businesses by presenting safety and health concerns. A Maricopa County judge ruled in their favor in March, ordering the city to disband the encampment by July 10th. The question on everyone's minds now, where will those in the zone go? A federal appeals court has ruled that cities can't remove homeless encampments unless they provide somewhere else for residents to go. Rachel Milne is the director of Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions. Everything that we offer will definitely be voluntary. We're not forcing anyone to go anywhere. Milne says the city is taking people to shelters and exploring creating a safe outdoor space for those who can't or don't want to go indoors. Moving forward, the big change is that folks will not be able to go back to the street once we've cleaned it. Back on the street, Sarah Bass says the shelters people were being taken to yesterday won't be enough. There are only two places that they're offering to put them, which are two shelters, and those places are going to fill it fast and then what? Standing outside a barricade, former Zone resident Bonnie, who doesn't want to use her last name for safety reasons, wishes the community had more empathy. Rather than turn your nose up to it, Maybe try to help somebody. Yesterday, the city only cleared out one of the several city blocks in the zone. It plans to clear more, but hasn't yet set a date. For NPR News, I'm Kirsten Dorman in Phoenix. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR on a Thursday morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up after today's top stories, the EPA is proposing new rules that would require coal and gas-fired power plants to eliminate nearly all their carbon dioxide emissions in about a decade. It's 829. Coming to City Space on Friday, May 12th at 7 p.m., a music festival featuring Lee Zangari, WBUR's Massachusetts favorite NPR Tiny Desk from t- NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Tens of thousands of migrants are gathered along the U.S.-Mexico border waiting for Title 42's expiration. The pandemic border restriction is set to be lifted today. 
President Biden has deployed active-duty military soldiers to the southern border to assist federal agents. New asylum restrictions are also in place. Still, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas says border communities in his district are already overwhelmed. The asylum law says you have to be here because there is a persecution by the state in the country that you're in and looking for a better life, trying to get away from crime or any of those reasons are not reasons to stay. And I'm sorry, but that's what the law says. Cuero was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Earlier this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott expanded his deployment of National Guard troops at the border. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Japan today for a meeting of G7 foreign ministers. She repeated her call for Congress to raise the debt ceiling. President Biden meets with congressional leaders again tomorrow to discuss the issue. Republican Congressman George Santos of New York has pleaded not guilty to 13 criminal charges. He was arraigned in federal court yesterday on counts that include money laundering. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Federal investigators may be looking into how Massachusetts responded to a prison attack. New legal documents suggest that a federal grand jury is investigating the response to the attack on correction officers at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in 2020. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Documents in a civil suit alleging brutality in the state's response at Sousa say federal investigators have been questioning witnesses. Defense attorney Patty DeJunis represents one of the prisoners in that civil suit. She says investigators appear to be asking about allegations of violent retaliation against prisoners after the Sousa guards were attacked. My clients testified. I know of other prisoners who testified. So I feel pretty confident that at least what happened to my clients is under investigation. The U.S. Attorney's Office says it doesn't comment on investigations. A federal grand jury could issue indictments if it determines that prison officials committed crimes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Boston planning officials today will take up a proposal to turn a hotel in Dorchester into housing for unhoused people. The plan would turn the Comfort Inn into nearly 100 studio apartments. Those against the plan claim it could increase crime and drug use in Dorchester. Those in support of it say that isn't a problem at similar housing units across the city. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers are considering a plan aimed at diversifying state boards and commissions. The bill would eventually require the bodies to be at least half female. It would also require that 30 percent of members identify as, quote, underrepresented minorities or LGBTQ+. State Treasurer Deborah Goldberg backs the idea. Organizations that have more women and more people of color are more reflective of their customers and their constituents and are more creative, more innovative, more successful, and more profitable. The plan would also require panels that don't meet the mandate to explain why. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
The Celtics have to win tonight to keep their season alive. They'll visit the Philadelphia 76ers for Game 6 of their playoff series. Boston trails three games to two. The Red Sox beat Atlanta last night 5-2. to two. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Cardinals tomorrow. Mostly clear skies today with highs near 80, partly cloudy tonight, and a low in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds with a slight chance of showers. Highs will be in the low 80s. It's 64 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. And a quick reminder, if your mom, wife, or daughter loves flowers, send them Winston Flowers for Mother's Day and help give WBUR a strong future. Choose from orchids, roses, or peonies for Mother's Day or seasonal flowers every month. Order by noon today for delivery tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Environmental Protection Agency is releasing a new proposal this morning. The agency is trying, again, to limit the emissions of carbon linked to climate change. The agency wants to all but eliminate carbon dioxide from coal and gas-fired plants. We say they're trying again because the Supreme Court threw out the last effort, or a previous effort. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk is here. Hey there, Jeff. Hey. What would these rules do? Well, for uh, big coal and gas-fired plants that run all the time, they'd have to capture 90% of their carbon dioxide emissions that come out of smokestacks or burn some clean forms of hydrogen. And these changes have to come pretty quickly. President Biden has a goal of zeroing out greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector by 2035. The emission limits, they're based on what a current carbon capture technology can do. That's for the big power plants that operators want to keep running for a long time. For other plants that are scheduled to shut down in the next few years or that run less often, uh, they would face less stringent emission limits. Here's what EPA Administrator Michael Regan says that would do for the climate. EPA's proposal is expected to avoid more than 600 million metric tons of carbon dioxide through 2042, which is equivalent to cutting emissions from half the total number of cars in the United States for an entire year. And Regan says there are significant health benefits, especially for people with breathing problems, because in reducing carbon dioxide emissions, other air pollutants get reduced too. Oh, that's interesting. But how are these rules different from the attempt that was made under the Obama administration known as the Clean Power Plan? Well, to start, the EPA thinks the rules announced this morning will withstand legal scrutiny from a conservative Supreme Court. Uh, The Obama-era rules did not. Uh, Those were overturned last year. The court sided with critics who said the agency overstepped its authority by telling power plant owners to switch away from fossil fuels to cleaner electricity, uh, like solar and wind and nuclear. This time, the EPA is taking a different approach. It's setting emission limits for individual power plants, but these will be even stricter than what the Obama administration proposed nearly a decade ago. And that's a big deal because the power sector is the second biggest source of greenhouse gases behind transportation. Okay, so they're not ordering companies to switch over to a different fuel, but they're saying restrict emissions, use carbon capture if you can, which may be expensive. What does the industry think? 
Well, as you can imagine, they're not happy. They argue the new rules would shut down a lot of plants, hurting reliability and increasing costs for ratepayers. Uh, Administrator Regan says EPA numbers uh, show costs will not rise significantly, and he disputes the reliability claims. He says uh, that was considered in drafting these proposed rules. The coal industry probably has the most to lose here since coal-fired plants are more carbon-intensive. And Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from the coal state of West Virginia, he had harsh words for the Biden administration. He criticized what he called the administration's, quote, radical climate agenda and said he'll block the administration's EPA nominees in the Senate until something changes. Is this EPA proposal going to become reality? You know, it's still a long process. Uh, Before it becomes a final rule, they're collecting comments. That's the next step. Final rules are expected next year. Uh, But I'm almost certain we can expect a court challenge. Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you. That's Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk. Today, the United States passes out of its COVID emergency. We have been in an official state of emergency ever since early 2020, when then-Health Secretary Alex Azar faced reporters at the White House. The United States government will implement temporary measures to increase our abilities to detect and contain the coronavirus proactively and aggressively. Temporary came to mean more than three years, although for many people the feeling of an emergency passed away long ago. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us what is changing on this day and what is not. Hey there, Selena. Hi, good morning, Steve. It is weird even to try to remember what it felt like in early 2020, how disorienting that moment was. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the very beginning of 2020, we had no idea what was in store. Schools shut down initially just for a few weeks. And in the past three years, there have been at least 6 million hospitalizations from COVID in the U.S. and 1.1 million U.S. deaths. That's not a final figure. At least 1,000 people a week still die, although those numbers have been trending down for months. And I should say opinion is divided on whether it's really the right time to end this emergency declaration. Some say it should have happened earlier. Others are still concerned, including Professor Howard Markell at the University of Michigan. He is a physician and medical historian. People are tired. Three years is a long, long, long time for this kind of stuff. I get that. But what I would say is that be careful out there. Markel himself actually got COVID in January and is still not feeling great. He says the end of the declaration does not mean COVID is done with us. Well, I finally got COVID just a few months ago, and I'm aware that it's out there, that members of my family could get it. But the declaration is ending today. So what does that mean in practice? Well, the federal government will no longer buy COVID tests or vaccine doses or treatments to give out to the American public for free. So that's a big change. Health insurance is going to take over. Patients will have to go to the doctor, get a prescription, perhaps pay a copay, just like they do for any other illness. Now, I should say vaccines will still be free for practically everyone, including people who are uninsured, at least while the federal supply lasts. Also, CDC will be scaling back its COVID data tracking efforts and won't update it as regularly. And for people on Medicaid, the requirement to recertify that you qualify every year was on hold during the pandemic. That has started up again. So everyone will have to recertify at some point this year to keep coverage. Getting back to what we vaguely recall as normal from before the pandemic, I'm thinking of another thing that I did for the first time in my life early in the pandemic, and that is that I had some doctor's appointment, and I did it 
on my phone. It was remote. It was telemedicine, which was suddenly much easier to do under new rules early in the pandemic. Is that going away? It is not, partly because it is so popular. It is going to stay the same, and that includes access to controlled substances via telemedicine um, and hospital-at-home programs. So a lot of those remote programs are going to stay in place, at least for now. All of the COVID tests and vaccines and treatments that the Food and Drug Administration approved for emergency use will also still be available. And I would say a lot of these real-world impacts are kind of on the technical side. For most people walking around, the end of the declaration is more than anything a moment to stop and reflect on the closing of this particular chapter. If we can even stand to think back. Yes. Selena, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, we hear about a new Netflix docudrama about Queen Cleopatra that depicts her as black. Nearly 80 today under mostly sunny skies. There's a slight chance of showers later this afternoon. Tonight it grows partly cloudy and falls to the upper 50s. Tomorrow we end the week with a partly overcast day in the low 80s. There's another slight chance of showers around midday. It's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Boston Children's Hospital is thinking about expanding into a new lab space building in the Fenway. Multiple sources tell the Boston Globe that the hospital is considering taking over about half of the new 13-story space. The building on Park Drive is less than a mile from Boston Children's Longwood campus. Wilmington-based robotics company Symbiotic is laying off 200 people. The Boston Globe reports the move will affect manufacturing workers at both its Massachusetts headquarters and its facility in Montreal. Symbiotic says the layoffs are part of its move to outsource manufacturing of its machines. Fans of Formula One can soon get behind the wheel of dozens of racing simulators in the seaport. F1 Arcade plans to open its first U.S. location in the neighborhood early next year. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The new Netflix docudrama Queen Cleopatra is stirring debate because the series portrays the iconic monarch as black. Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities calls the show, quote, a falsification of Egyptian history, unquote. We wanted to dig into that, so we called Rebecca Futo-Kennedy. She's an associate professor at Denison University, and she's an authority on race and ethnicity in antiquity. And she's with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So before we get into the controversy. Just tell us about the history. How does the way we think about race today compare to Cleopatra's time? So um, I think we need to recognize that race is not actually these categories of black and white. Um, That's one of the confusion points. It's actually the political and social system that makes those categories relevant. So if you think about how we organize people historically into different groupings, sometimes uh, in the recent, you know, two to 300 years, we've used black and white, but in the past, they used different categories entirely, um, usually functioning around culture or religion, sometimes geography. So basically, when we talk about black and white in antiquity, we're mostly talking about gender distinctions, not what we would call race today. So that's really one of the primary differences. So what, what do you think informed the depiction of Cleopatra in this series? And of course, you know, I'm going to ask you is, is it historically you know, accurate or at least reasonable that she be depicted as black. So what informed this, of course, is um, a couple of hundred years of debate over what um, Africa has contributed to, quote unquote, civilization. So we've heard a lot of sort of white supremacist discourse in the past that basically says that Africa contributed nothing um, to, to civilization. And so this is a way to push back on that that's been happening since the 19th century to sort of reclaim an ancient past for black Americans, especially, but for Africa, generally speaking. So that's one of the things that sort of is underlying all this. Now, your question about whether or not it's okay or not okay to portray her as black, Cleopatra manipulated her own image all the time. She had one face for her coinage and multiple faces for her coinage that went out amongst the Greeks in the Mediterranean and the Romans, and she had a different face that she wore in her Egyptian iconography. So she herself was manipulating her own image for audience. So whether we do this in our own entertainment industry or not seems to be fitting in with her own iconographic tradition. And there was no photography. So, so how do <laughs> and we there was no photography. Or, or AI for that matter. But, but, so, right. but, but while we're at it, I'm just as briefly as you can, why do you think there's been such a focus on her race? And what do you think the backlash against the show in Egypt says about how race or skin color or whatever it is functions there? So I, I hate to I hate to pull this one out, but so there was a quotation uh, recently in a New York Times piece where it talks about um, Egypt's precarious relationship to Africa itself. And the quote was that it holds membership in the African Union and other continental groups. Then they say, but in Greek and Roman times, historians say Egypt was a major player in the Mediterranean and a gateway to Africa rather than fully African. And I think that's the problem is that we've always wanted to position Egypt as more of a legacy of Europe and not of Mm -hmm. Africa. And that debate is still raging. And that's why we have such a heavy conflict over this. That is Rebecca Futo-Kennedy. She's an associate professor of classical studies at Denison University. Thanks so much for trying to clear this up for us. (laughs) You're welcome. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
You're getting through the week with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, a federal task force has updated its recommendations to advise that women start getting mammograms at age 40. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at whether that'll be covered by most insurance providers. It's 849. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. My mother died 20 years ago on Valentine's Day, just a few months after her cancer diagnosis. After that, the post office forwarded all her mail to me a few states away. Even after she was gone, she got more mail than I ever did. Letters that painted a vivid picture of who she was. One from a former patient who had no idea my mom had died. Her foodie magazines, solicitations from political candidates. Then, a letter arrived from a good cause she'd given to for years, wondering why her donations had stopped so suddenly. On the envelope in big, bold letters, it said, Natalie, where are you? We miss you. I miss her, too, every day, after all these years. I wish she knew I'd come home to Boston, a city she loved, to run this station. She'd be so proud. My mom loved flowers, too. Send Winston flowers to your mom and support WBUR, a really good cause. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Border officials are bracing for an influx of migrants as pandemic-era immigration restrictions end tonight. The state and federal COVID-19 public health emergencies end today, meaning the end of masking in public health settings. And an Army sergeant in Texas who shot and killed a Black Lives Matter protester in 2020 has been sentenced to 25 years in prison. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Mostly sunny and near 80 today. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston at 851. With three weeks to go before the debt ceiling hits the fan, we'll check up on the latest calculations. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. I'm David Brancaccio. A half world away at a meeting of a group of seven finance ministers in Japan, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen today issued fresh warnings about crashing into the debt ceiling, saying a U.S. government default could undermine the global economy. Her remarks come as a new report from the financial research firm Moody's Analytics warns that the economic damage could rival that of the Great Recession, with millions of jobs lost. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, David, we've heard a lot of comparisons of the debt ceiling standoff with a similar impasse in 2011 when the nation's credit rating took a hit. But Moody's points further back. It's drawing comparisons to 2008 when Congress initially failed to pass the Troubled Assets Relief Program. And that led to a plunging stock market, spiking interest rates and a freeze up in credit markets, which keep the economy moving. And then Congress reversed itself days later. Now, as for today, Moody's predicts even a short-term default would cause similar damage, one and a half million jobs lost, a long-term increase in borrowing costs throughout the economy, 
And in the case of a prolonged default, which seems unthinkable, Moody says we'd lose as many as 8 million jobs and we'd have another great recession. Another great recession. Uh, President Biden is scheduled to meet again with congressional leaders tomorrow. You see any indications the sides maybe are closer? Well, frankly, no. Uh, Congressional aides and White House officials are said to be talking behind the scenes, trying to get to a deal. But Biden was in New York State yesterday, blasting Republicans for insisting on budget cuts, unspecified ones tied to a debt ceiling increase. And then you had former President Donald Trump on CNN saying Republicans should let the country default unless they are granted massive spending cuts. And of course, Trump holds a lot of sway, David, in his party. Nova Safo, thank you. Today marks a major shift in U.S. border policy, an end to what's called Title 42, a rule that had allowed U.S. authorities to swiftly expel people who come into the U.S. without permission. It was put into place to beef up borders during high COVID, but it's not the only way the pandemic has shaped recent migration flows. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval has more on how the post-pandemic economy is contributing to higher numbers of people coming into the U.S., Whether people are leaving their countries for political, safety, or economic reasons, what makes them come to the United States is largely economic. The World Bank Group still a brotha. United States is the largest economy in the world. He says that economic might of the U.S. has always been a major pull factor. And now, in the post-pandemic economy... We've seen a really strong recovery in the United States. Julia Gillette is with the Migration Policy Institute. Demand for workers has been really high and our unemployment rate fell quickly to pre-pandemic levels and even below that. She says in parts of Latin America, the recovery hasn't been so fast. There are still strong economic challenges, higher unemployment rates, also higher rates of inflation that are kind of undermining the purchasing power of, of even people who keep their jobs. She says migrants who are allowed into the U.S. quickly find jobs and make many times more than what they would back home. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. The Nasdaq closed up 1% yesterday, swept in the updraft of Alphabet Google stock, which went up 4% this after Google announced its generative artificial intelligence-powered search system to compete with JetGPT over at Microsoft. Dow futures this morning are down four tenths percent. S&P futures are down one tenth percent. NASDAQ futures are up, but by less than two tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. A new U.S. guideline recommends that women with average risk factors should get regular mammograms starting at age 40 rather than 50. Preventative mammograms are covered by most insurance providers, but follow-up exams might not be. And the extra false positive results that'll come with earlier screenings also have costs. Ali Budner has more. 40 used to be the recommended age to start breast cancer screening. Then in 2009, it changed to 50. Now it's 40 again. My doctor recommended it to me at 40, so this change was a little bit surprising because I thought it was already at 40. 
Ya Akosi Antwi is an economics professor at Johns Hopkins University. Her own confusion aside, she says this change may have real economic consequences for insurance companies, providers, and patients. The Affordable Care Act requires insurers, including Medicare and Medicaid, to pay for preventative mammograms. What this means is that perhaps insurance companies would pass it on to consumers in terms of higher premiums. Or they might just absorb it, says health economist Jason Shafrin with FTI Consulting. If you detect people with breast cancer earlier, the cost of treating people at early stage breast cancer compared to later is much cheaper. So earlier tests might be saving lives and lowering the cost burden on the system overall. But it's not that simple for clinics and hospitals, says Shafrin. Costs are rising and reimbursement may be lagging, especially for the public payers, Medicare and Medicaid. For most insured patients, it won't cost any more to start getting mammograms earlier because they're fully covered. But the roughly 16% of people who get an abnormal result will probably need more tests. Unlike the mammogram, those might not be free. Heather Gold is a professor of population health at New York University. That really depends on the individual's health insurance policy. Anywhere from 7 to 12 percent of follow-up tests reveal no cancer at all. That's known as a false positive. And false positives can be financially, medically, and emotionally draining. Still, the uninsured are left completely behind. And Antwi at Johns Hopkins says there's a race divide. African-American women are overrepresented in terms of people who are without insurance. The U.S. Preventative Health Care Task Force included in its announcement this week that Black women are 40% more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. And lowering the screening age may not be enough to change that. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. And you're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for listening to Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. You'll have mostly sunshine today, and it'll be near 80. Temperatures drop into the 50s tonight before rising to the low 80s tomorrow. Friday will be partly sunny. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.